Hello, world. Hi, y'all. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Another week. I'm Alicia. I'm Stacy. Y'all, we're falling into the ring of fire today with some listener-requested Trashy Love Triangles. Yeah, the triangles aspect here opens all kinds of interesting possibilities. I have actually had some interesting conversations in my life. One particularly uncomfortable one with my mother about what the song Ring of Fire is actually about. What is it? There's no double entendre. The ring of fire is certainly code for a lady body part. We're going to follow up on the ring of fire legal controversy on it. Really? Welcome to a whole new world of understanding. I don't listen to a lot of Johnny Cash. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah, there's a little controversy about the song and how and when it was written and who got the credit, which we'll follow up on tidbits this week. But... <laughs> Just want to let you know that Ring of Fire hmm. is written about interesting the lady part of part of my trashy love triangle today because I'm covering the trashy love triangle of Johnny Cash, mm-hmm. June Carter, and Johnny's first wife, Vivian Liberto. Sure. Oh my, who remembers that Johnny Cash had a first wife? You. You remember? Uh, I remember. Her story is told often incorrectly. If it's not told incorrectly, it is forgotten, and I am here to correct that today. Yeah. It is bittersweet and trashy and heart-wrenching. It was also, there are just like hilariously trashy bits that are I loved. It's the fulfillment of all things of our podcast. Stacy, who are you bringing us today? You have another trashy love triangle? Yeah, this week I have the trashy love triangle of Paula Yates, Bob Geldof, and Michael Hutchins, which... By golly, went poorly just across the friggin' board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So buckle up for that happy tale. Yeah, good times, good times. Yeah. Before we get to your story, let's go ahead and bring on our magic mirror and give some big thanks to our new Patreon people this week. Absolutely. Over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. What did we do this week over there? Our new friends heard Trashy Tidbits on Monday. Mm-hmm. American Woman premiered it did. with the story of Evelyn Nesbitt and the crime of the century. Mm-hmm. Go back and check your feeds from Thursday. We dropped that first episode to everyone. Ooh, we did a fun with Dunn about Wallace's jewels. We did did a Mm -hmm. secret nightcap chat for our trash candy connoisseurs. Some something out of a vault. Yes, thank you so much to Beth D, Jennifer M, Nicole M, Emily S, Kelly H. Finchie, Alicia P, Don C, and Kate D. And I'm giving Jennifer M. and Nicole M. a second shout out because they signed up for an annual subscription and got two months free of yeah. Trashy Divorces Patreon for the next year. Thank you to Meredith H., Michelle M., and Tina L. for upgrading your trash candy. Also, we have a new annual super supporter, Kenda H. Trash Pandas on Patreon, thank you. All of our supporters, you are literally the best community in the universe. So many levels to get into over there, depending on how much trash candy you need. And oh, one more thing before we go, go, go. Holidays are coming up. We're closing in on the end of season eight, but we want to do a little holiday special. We've had some different discussions on social media lately about trashy wedding stories, trashy mother-in-law stories, trashy bridesmaid stories. Trashy divorce stories. You want people to send them, yes. Oh, yeah. Tell the people. Yes. So send us 
your trashy stories. We're hoping to put together a Christmas special where we we'll all holiday up. have a good chuckle about our own family trashiness. Where should everybody send those trashy divorce wedding mother-in-law brides? Sure. Our street Just address is... holiday no, trash, y'all. Yeah. Email us at trashydivorces at gmail.com. We love all your trash. We do so much. We're already starting to get them in and they are delicious. We can't wait to read yours on air over the holidays. All I want under the tree this year is a bushel of raccoon babies. Which we're going to call trash pandas and uh-huh. taken in love. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Call them Johnny Cash and George Strait. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yes, we will name them for TD alum. <laughs> I think that's the business. You about ready to so. uh, to go, go, go? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go, go, go. So, Alicia, I'm familiar with Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash. Sure. You're telling me that there's a secret history of Johnny Cash and a trashy divorce. Yeah, nobody remembers that he had a first wife for uh, 13 I, years. Whoa, I don't remember that at all. So the love story and the 35-year marriage of Johnny Cash and June Carter over time, and the fulfillment of time, has become the story. Sure. And very few people remember that Johnny had a first wife. June had two first husbands before Johnny. They had six kids between them. Hmm. And the affair that Johnny Cash and June Carter have and the chemistry between them will burn it all down. The romance of Johnny Cash and June Carter is immortalized in most of our collective memories from 2005's I Walk the Line with Reese Witherspoon and Joaquin Joaquin Phoenix, Phoenix. I think. And that is definitely the Hollywood version of the story. It was approved. By both Johnny and June, the script before. So that is an approved couple message. But the Hollywood version, because Johnny's first wife, Vivian Liberto, is portrayed in that movie as a shrew. She's bitter. She's vindictive. She's jealous in the very few minutes that she gets in the movie. Because... Honestly, when she's not being portrayed as a baddie, she's largely forgotten. She's kind of resigned to this footnote in history, which is just not the case. So in the movie, there's Johnny Cash, man in black, tormented, artistic genius, saved by the love of June Carter. The truth, my friends, is a bit more complicated. (laughs) Or at least the truth. It's like the subtitle of our show. (laughs) Right. Or at least the truth in the stories that we tell ourselves, because stories matter. They do. No one remembers Vivian, and I think it's high time someone should. There are some myths that might need to be cleared up, and some shading of what the truth could be from Vivian's POV. Because Vivian's going to tell her story after the death of Johnny and June in 2003, with Johnny's blessing. She finishes the book, her script, her manuscript about their love story in 2005, right before her death. And most recently, just this past year, the mantle of Vivian's legacy has been picked up by her grandson, 
So there's a documentary out called My Darling Vivian that aims to address sort of the forgotten history of Johnny Cash and Vivian. And all four of their daughters agree to be on the documentary project. And it's sort of a love letter to a remarkable woman and mother and grandmother and wife. And there's a lot packed into a very shy and private person who is the first and not at all forgettable wife of legend Johnny Cash. Because for real, Johnny Cash, music legend, 13 number one hits, including Ring of Fire, A Boy Named Sue, I Walk the Line. Johnny's going to sell 90 million albums in his career. And counting, really, because he, I mean, he's enduring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a career that spans 55 years. He's a legend Mm -hmm. and a dirt bag of a husband. (laughs) Our favorite type of person. Let's talk about how it all goes down. Vivian Doreen Liberto. She's born April 23rd, 1934 in San Antonio, Texas. She grows up as a middle daughter in a strict Italian Catholic household. Italian Americans. Dad sells insurance and does amateur magic on the side. Mom is a housewife and also an alcoholic. Super religious family. Strict upbringing. Vivian's family in San Antonio owns a grocery store, a convenience market, something. They're very deep rooted in the Texas dirt the the culture the I mean, they're they texas has been home san antonio has been home for a long time uh, upper middle class family vivian's kind of okay so okay. she has a comfortable upbringing is comfortable what you're saying upbringing problems alcoholic mom dad who wants to do magic but comfortable upbringing i'm imagining barney stinson right now <laughs> right <laughs> so san antonio texas july 18th 1951 it's summer vacation Vivian is 17, and she goes to the roller skating rink with her friends one night. And in walks a 19-year-old Air Force cadet, hillbilly, Johnny Cash. They skate. They fall in love. He proposes. He's usually the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. And she comes home and tells her parents, like, I've met the man Uh, I'm going to marry. I'm engaged. And her parents are like, you're out of your mind. You are not going to marry that boy. Because he's getting deployed in three weeks. He's on the reserve base, right? So he's about to get shipped out. So they have three enchanted weeks together. Three weeks later, he's off to Germany. But they write each other every day for three years. 10,000 pages of letters. Wow. Okay? Three years every day. He's stationed in Germany. 10,000 pages of hundreds of romantic sweet letters dreaming of the bright future that they're going to have when they are fulfilled in their love. And through these letters, because they are published in Vivian's book, oh, she's painfully shy and sensitive and insightful and reserved and private. And Johnny is so encouraging to her and encourages their love and is so, it's just, ah, And your husband-to-be is how Johnny signs the letters. And three years of waiting and wishing and hoping, and Johnny's finally home. He's discharged in July of 1954, and wedding plans are finally underway. And Vivian's like, I wasn't nervous at all. 
I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. I knew it was the right thing to do. Hmm. There's one condition that Johnny makes on the wedding and that there is no alcohol to be served at the reception. Oh, interesting. Did he just not want her mother there? No, he wants to be a gospel <laughs> singer. He's into God. He does not. He, like, he has spent his letters telling her like, don't like drugs and alcohol are bad. Let's live in the Lord. Like it is a very, uh, Different Johnny Cash than the one that becomes known in our collective imagination just a few years later. Sure. So before he was the bad boy, he was the good boy. Playing gospel songs, Mm -hmm. right? I want to be a gospel singer and let's devote our lives to the Lord. And I mean, yes and no, I'm not a Johnny Cash historian, but he is not a teetotaler, but... Drugs sure. and alcohol are bad. They'll ruin your life. They're going to don't. I'll never do those. I mean, just going to jump in with he's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually very good advice we from Johnny Cash. seasons of a podcast if, that mostly prove that. If only Johnny Cash had listened to Johnny Cash's advice. <laughs> so August 7th, 1954, a month after Johnny Cash is discharged, there is the wedding. They take the $500 of wedding cash, they pile into the new car they've saved for, oh, and they pack up the case of Kraft macaroni and cheese as they got for one of their wedding shower gifts. A whole case. A whole case. Isn't that a fun (laughs) wedding shower gift? In 1954, a whole case of macaroni and Kraft macaroni and cheese? Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. That was just such a detail. Still love it today. Sort of thing. (laughs) Anyway, they pile in the car with their mac and cheese. They head off to Memphis. Kids are on their way. Johnny working as a salesman, doing some gospel music on the side. Johnny's going to audition for Sam Phillips at Sun Records. And that. And here we are back in Memphis in the mid-50s. Single day, single hour will change everything because Johnny's got a new trajectory now. Yeah. And he's out touring with all those other choir boys. Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. Roy Orbison. I mean, it's the mid-1950s and it's yeah. all happening, right? Yeah. And hey, if you have just stumbled onto our little podcast, you can hear more about this era. We have covered Elvis Presley and Ike and Tina Turner. Ike Turner came through this whole scene, too. And um, Memphis in this era was fascinating. So. Fascinating. I still have Jerry Lee Lewis on the scope. I just don't have the stomach for it yet, but we'll probably get to him next season. (laughs) Who would we pair for our Great Balls of Fire episode? I don't even know. That's part of the, that's part of the uh, controversy. Part of the mystery. Okay. Okay. So it's all happening. Rock and roll lifestyle. And Johnny Cash is getting some attention from the ladies. Not the four daughters of his that Vivian will have through their marriage. But, you know, like, he's touring and, you know, Viv's, like, naturally a little concerned that Johnny may be stepping out because he's on the road and she's at home raising kids. And she asked him one day, like, are you tempted to cheat? This is early in their marriage. Johnny Cash will reply, I walked the line for you, baby. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which will become the 1956 hit, I Walked the Line, which gains a whole lot of attention. You're saying it started as a line. <laughs> started as a line. I walked the line for you, baby. So that song is going to kind of make him gain a whole lot of attention. And now the couple is moving to California 
fun little trashy divorces spiderweb here. The couple moves into Johnny Carson's former home in Encino. Johnny Cash snatches that sucker up on Havenhurst Avenue for $75,000 in 1958. That is a lot of house money in 1958. A lot of house money. That was a 3,700-square-foot house with a little cachet. And I want to say Clark Gable and... Like, Gary Cooper were his neighbor. Like, okay. it's Encino's kind of the place to be at that time. Yeah. So it was a good deal for what it was. But by the time a third daughter has come along in the early 60s, they're going to move again. And Vivian will say that this dangerous current entered our lives. Because Johnny Cash, all those heartfelt letters daily for three years. Johnny Cash thinks drugs are and alcohol are filthy and dirty and they'll destroy your life and he wants nothing to do with them. And Johnny Cash is going to actually start embracing those things in great and tremendous quantity. So by the time the last daughter is born in 1961, they will move yet again to Casita Springs. And the first idea Johnny has, this is 1961, this is just madcap. I'm going to buy this trailer park, which he does. And he renames it to Johnny Cash's Trailer Rancho. And he builds a home for his mom and dad there who run the trailer park. And he really likes Casitas. Okay, great. So he's going to decide to build a home there. One of his daughters is allergic to smog. And he convinces Vivian, which the marriage is already... The undercurrents are all there. He's mm. traveling. He's dabbling in drugs. He. Right. They, okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Johnny Cash goes up to the top of the mountain one day and he's like, this is a place my house is going to be. So he gets people to come clear it out. And then he literally goes and lays on the ground with the architect. Holds his hands out like, this is how big I need the bathtub. And. Like, spaces out the house and builds the house. And Vivian is like, whatever, dude. If this will get you home in a place that you like, it reminded him of Arkansas, right? It reminded him of of home. and Because it's a tiny, tiny town. If this will get you back to me and our four kids, fantastic. Build whatever weird home you want to build <laughs> on the mountain. The Giant bathtubs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. The ceiling is painted black with stars on it. Uh because he wants to see the starry sky because... Did put a skylight in, okay? Yeah, okay, so... Get a solarium. <laughs> Vivian is, like, into it. Because he's spending, like, 250 days a year on the road. Like, if you're going to come home and this is going to be better, great. Friends, it was not better. <laughs> but here Vivian is, hoping the move and the new baby is going to repair this marriage that's falling apart. Right. If he can get a place that is sanctuary so that when he's sure. home, he's really, really home. Well, and late Casitas is really close. And when Johnny's there, he gets to fish with liquor and drugs. And he's going to end up getting into a little bit of trouble at home or a lot of trouble <sighs> at home. Uh, just a few. Uh, well, he's going to get in trouble elsewhere, too. But let's talk about the trouble at home first. One of these fine days, out doing a little drunk fishing, Johnny Cash is going to end up setting fire to some 500 acres of California forests 
taking out 53 protected condors takes a week to battle down. Like 400 <laughs> firemen are working on this. It's super bad. Yeah, I don't want to laugh because it's I terrible. Mean, we we see California fires constantly now, it's and like terrible. they're terrifying. Um, but okay. he blames it on his tailpipe well. when he goes to court. Okay, so even then it was... And not just him trying to light a drunk fire that got out of control, right? whatever. He goes to court. Johnny Cash arsonist. Johnny Cash arsonist. And the judge is like, don't you even feel bad for the forests or the firefighters or the birds? And Johnny Cash is like, I mean, hold my tailpipe accountable, man. It was a spark. Yeah, it was bad. (sighs) He's going to get a hefty fine, like an $82,000 fine. But Vivian's there supporting him, and I'm a family man, and I have these kids, and he tries to redeem himself with this Johnny Cash arsonist label. Ring of fire. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Sticking with the wife and kids. But then in 1965, when he's not at home, I mean, there's some car crashes. There's some drunk car crashes. There's also... A big drug arrest in 1965 where, I don't know, a thousand or so pills, barbiturates, amphetamines are found in his guitar case that it was a good idea to smuggle across from Mexico? I feel like that quantity does not indicate recreational use. (laughs) Casual, occasional (laughs) user. Well, This this is fun on Fridays. No. (laughs) fun on Fridays new workplace adventure (laughs) (laughs) pretty sure for him it was fun Monday through Sunday (laughs) it's terrible Vivian goes to bail him out of jail okay so he's busted like crossing back into the country okay yeah oh yeah hey what's in that guitar case there (laughs) sir i don't know a thousand pills of uh uppers and downers once you get locked into a serious drug collection the tendency is to push it as far as you can okay so vivian there is bailing him out of jail like this is terrible so vivian is italian-american sicilian roots texas long-standing history but in the picture that they take of her bailing johnny cash out of jail this is 1965 the headline reads johnny cash's negro wife bails him out of jail how does that go over well she's i mean definitely darker complected very hep and up to date and racially cool america of the mid 60s yeah so people think that oh my god johnny cash is married to a black woman Mm -hmm. and here begin the protests the canceled concerts the nasty letters as well as the death threats from the kkk wonderful wonderful vivian is just trying to get her husband out of jail yeah like you do like when your dirtbag husband comes back from Mexico with a thousand pills in his guitar case. So Johnny Cash, like at this point, is really using Vivian and the kids as his hostages, <laughs> hostages to get him out of these scrapes. Right. And these are the only the scrapes that Vivian knows about because like other things are going on, too. So let's get into the love triangle part. Because Vivian's really trying. She's raising four kids. 
She's saving her husband from addiction, who is being entirely devoured by his own worst devices and instincts and is going against the boy that she fell in. Like, this is not you. And now begin hints and allegations by his bandmates, his friends, her friends. There are receipts that Vivian will find just for thousands of dollars for expensive gifts. Vivian is now a believer in the fact that Johnny Cashkin has walked the line right over a cliff and (laughs) is in fact cheating and has been for a while now with June Carter. I know the name. (laughs) June Carter, part of a folk family country music dynasty. She's country music princess. June's been circling around Johnny Cash since about 1956, since the first time she saw him at the Grand Old Opry. She was married then to husband number one, and then divorced, and then married again. And June is still currently married to hubby number two at the time that Vivian is suspecting finding clues and receipts and getting verification that, in fact, her husband and June Carter are fucking around. Vivian will say the main two things that destroyed her marriage to Johnny were drugs and June Carter, more so June than the drugs. At this point, so they moved to the house in... The one with all the bathtubs. (laughs) The one with all the bathtubs. What's the name of that town? Hold on. Casitas or something? Casitas. They moved to the house in Casitas and four kids burning down the... Yeah. I, okay. It's very bad. He sounds like a terrible he's neighbor. terrible. Okay. <laughs> oh, he's a terrible neighbor. He um, <laughs> sets up... Because his house is on a hill. It's like on top of the mountain. So he sets up these outrageously huge sound speaker systems and Blair's Christmas music, because that's the one time of the year he's home to the town. Oh, my God. Okay. So Vivian at this point, it's all bad. She says everything, I mean everything, started to fall apart. Vivian will say losing your husband to another woman is a degrading and horrible experience. And she'll recall, like, if I only could have traveled with him instead of being here raising four kids... Things might have been different, but things are not different. Vivian is a hell of a classy lady because she doesn't go after June as much as I think that she would like to. But she is on record in her book referring to June saying, this woman was a danger to my family. Vivian will also recall that one time June encounters her backstage at a show And June gets up in Vivian's face and says, Vivian, he will be mine. Yikes. Their daughter, Cindy. This is not cool. We'll verify this. She says once June came along, she relentlessly, well, she wanted dad and she was going to get him. And she did. She made herself very available to where he pursued her back. Even Roseanne Cash their other daughter, like she was relieved when the divorce finally happened. Like maybe you both can be happy now because mom, you're not, this is terrible. For well, you. and it sounds like dad's mistress has been bullying dad's wife. Yeah. <laughs> well, Vivian will go on to make further claims that June will enable Johnny's addiction. She'll provide him drugs and that June 
also has a problem with drugs herself, it's all pretty terrible. But by 1966, it is all too much. Vivian makes a stand. She files for divorce. She thinks that certainly this move, me drawing the line and filing for divorce, will kick Johnny out of this downward spiral. It'll straighten him out. It does not. And she's Catholic, so... Oh, wait on it. Okay. Oh, that's, yeah. Cause, yeah, that that's sort of uh, an even bigger deal, I think. Johnny does not come back. The divorce is finalized in 1967, so 13 years of marriage. And Vivian, as a devout Catholic, to add insult to injury, cannot take communion anymore. Until oh. Johnny Cash writes a letter to the Archdiocese, pretty much taking the blame as a terrible husband and father, and it's not Vivian's fault. And can you please restore her right to the Holy Sacrament of communion? You know what? I'm glad that he did that. that well, I think he'd cleaned up by then. Oh, so, okay, so it wasn't, like, no, it was a relatively after, short well, period of time on, later. because here's what's oh. going to happen. So Vivian like, files for divorce. They divorce. She moves into a new house. Johnny Cash is going to take off for Nashville and June Carter. And we'll get clean after all of the years that Vivian mm-hmm. has battled with mm-hmm. his addictions. Johnny Cash is going to get clean. And he's going to marry June Carter, who is now divorced husband number two of hers in 1968. They get married and maybe not entirely happy for 35 years until her passing in 2003. And his passing just a few months later. I have a whole bunch of Carter Cash family stories this week saved for Patreon. But that story sort of becomes what takes the place of this whole 13 year-long marriage to Vivian, right? Now, Vivian, for her part, is going to remarry. She remarries a police officer. She's the president of her garden club. She volunteers at the local hospital. She will complete her manuscript in 2005 after getting Johnny's permission to tell their love story after June died back in 2003. She goes to visit him, and he's like, you know what, if anybody should tell this story, you should... uh, You have my blessing. She finishes the last pages of that manuscript and she passes away at the age of 71 in 2005. Wow. There's a Ventura resident named Katrina Plate who said about Vivian, she really had the heart of a saint and the wisdom of a queen. I've truly never met a nicer person. Vivian sounds like a badass. Like she sounds awesome. A little bit. I mean, putting up with... Like an outlaw country dude with a drug problem for (laughs) a decade plus. Um, Yeah, got to have some patience there, don't you? So in the book, Vivian confesses that she never stopped loving Johnny. And she does regret that she did not try harder to save their marriage. Saying, I should have been relentless at saving it as relentless as June was at destroying it. In her book, there was this part that was just really, really touching where she's at his memorial service when he dies. And all these people are remembering all of these things and what she remembers. They're just so much more tender. So I'm going to read just a little excerpt from her book now about not remembering the hits, not remembering the performances. But these are the things that I remember. I remember our wedding day and the pride I felt the first time I wrote my name, Mrs. Johnny Cash. I remember the soothing sound of Johnny's voice as he gently combed his fingers through my hair and lulled me to sleep with a whisper 
as he sang Love Me Tender at the end of a busy day. I remember the giggles of our girls, our babies, on Christmas morning as Johnny played with them. I remember the delicious smell of Johnny making biscuits in our kitchen with a recipe only he knew by heart. I remember all the fun we had at home with our menagerie of animals around the house, horses, dogs, a monkey, and a parrot. I remember fishing with Johnny alone, just him and me, and how he loved to sit back and watch me cast and then wait and laugh each time I panicked when I caught something. I remember us dyeing his hair black in the kitchen sink and one time crying laughing when we tried bleaching it blonde, a mistake we quickly fixed before anyone else could see. (laughs) These are the slices of life I remember. I never did stop loving Johnny, and that made getting on with my life after our divorce very difficult. Of course, he and I moved on with new marriages and new lives, but I have always believed in my heart that what happened to our marriage should have never happened. I will never believe it was God's will. Hmm. And that is the terribly trashy and sad and heart-wrenching and bittersweet divorce of Johnny Cash and Vivian Liberto. I'm given that 13 trash cans for the number one hits and the number of years they were married, hmm. all filled, set out in a ring, all filled with fire. And condors. <laughs> I mean, okay, classic garden variety, busted up, trashy divorces story, right? Like busted up by infidelity and addiction and... And like fame and money, right? Who is equipped to handle fame and money if you didn't come from a lot of money, right? Like no one has those tools. Yeah, I don't don't know. It's such an interesting, it's a fascinating tale, but that is the tale of Johnny. Sure. Cash and his first wife, Vivian, whom no one remembers, and I hope people will now. She's a hell of a lady. Well, I'm going to note that everyone in your story is now dead, and we're just going to continue that theme. (laughs) (laughs) Heart-wrenching and bittersweet. I think we're coming back with more heart-wrenching and bittersweet with your story. Yeah. Let's uh, hear from our sponsors. and take a little break. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends. So for me, it's, you know. Try to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. (laughs) Podcasts on yeah, podcast your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. Stacy, yeah. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? You have an often requested listener I do. story this week. And I will admit that I, I knew nothing about this. 
Oh, thanks for taking this one for the team. It's been on my list forever, and I just didn't have the heart. It's. I think this is uh, particularly going to work for our UK and Irish and Aussie listeners. Yeah. Maybe Kiwis as well. Hi, friends. Hello, friends. This is a more tragic than trashy tale, but it does have a lot of both. So usually when I'm telling these stories, I start with the oldest person. But for this trashy love triangle, I'm going to start with Paula Yates, a journalist and television personality in the UK who was the connective tissue between her longtime boyfriend and then husband of a decade, musician and activist Bob Geldof, and the doomed rock star she left him for, in excesses, Michael Hutchins. Mm. Get ready for some twists and turns, because this goes all over. Polly Yates was born in Colwyn Bay, Wales, on the 24th of April, 1959. She's a, a Welsh Taurus. girl. Nice. She's a Welsh Taurus. Huh. I think, I don't know if she's... Welsh. I think she's English, but she was born in Wales. We can cut all of that. Her mother had been an actress and wrote erotic fiction. Oh my gosh, really? Yes, while the man she grew up believing was her father hosted an ITV religious program. So much later, she would learn that her father was a different TV and radio guy. uh, And apparently that news created significant personal unhappiness for her. But that was after many more things would come to pass, and the unhappiness by then was perhaps baked in. Wait a minute. Dad hosts a God program and mom writes porn? Yes. Fantastic. And had an affair. Okay. Awesome. With another TV and radio host, Huey Green. Anyway, I think it... I feel like this is fulfilling the trash component (laughs) of our podcast so far. And it's erotic fiction, Alicia. Sorry. When she was a teenager... 15, 16, she got really into this up-and-coming Irish rock band called the Boomtown Rats. I don't like Mondays. In 1976, she flew to Paris to surprise the band while they were playing there. No way. With an eye on the front man, Bob Geldof. Uh-uh. Tall, lanky fella. And the next two decades of her life's trajectory would be set by this teenage fandom. She's a fan who wants to become a groupie, so she just and picks up a flight and just goes and... Quick it, trip to Paris, yeah. Wow. It was the 70s. It's always a good time for Paris. 16, 17-year-olds could hop on planes to go see the Boomtown Rats in Paris. All right, well, here's Bob Geldof now in our story. Robert Frederick Zonan Geldof was born on October 5th, 1951. He's a Libra. In Dunleary, Ireland, I had to look up the pronunciation of that particular Irish word. He lost his mother when he was just six years old. She died Mm. of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 41. Oh, God. He was not a popular kid, and after he graduated from school, he worked a number of odd jobs before finally being hired to write about music for the Vancouver-based The Georgia Strait paper. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Like the alt paper up in British Columbia. When he came back to Ireland a few years later, in 1975... It's called The Georgia Strait paper? The Georgia Strait, it's the oh, bo- it's the body of water off of off yeah. yeah. George Strait is a country the, music. The George The George Strait. <laughs> Sorry. The famous alternative weekly of Vancouver country music scene. <laughs> I'm still stuck in Johnny Cash. Okay, I'm with you. <laughs> the the Georgia Strait. It's it's a body of water. Back with you now. <laughs> it's a channel of water. Okay. So he gets back to Ireland, 75. He and some other Dunleerians form the Boomtown Rats. Fantastic. 
the next year. He and Paula would become a thing, and in 1977, the Boomtown Rats would be signed to Instant Records and begin a several-year-long run of putting out hugely successful music, songs like Looking After Number One, Rat Trap, which was produced by Mutt Lang, another TD alum. Really? I Don't Like Mondays, yeah. which was about a school shooting yeah, or an attempted school shooting. Oh, no, a real school shooting. It was a shooting. real school shooting. Mm-hmm. And Up All Night, among many, many others. Paula, being in the heart of the new wave scene anyway, got into music journalism herself with a column in the Record Mirror, and in the 80s would become a well-known television presenter, co-hosting a pop music show called The Tube, starting in 1982, and a decade later, running a segment of on-the-bed interviews for the Big Breakfast Morning Show. Oh my. Along the way, they had a daughter, a Las Vegas wedding, this was in 1986, when they had been together for a decade, Duran Duran's Simon Laban was the best man. No. Mm-hmm. <sighs> then they had two more daughters. Bob, meanwhile, was getting more and more into activist causes and spearheading charity records like Band-Aid and events like Live Aid to fund relief efforts during just the desperate Ethiopian famine of 1983 to 1985. Hell of a guy, Bob Geldof. Yes. Um, yeah, this famine killed 1.2 million people. It's terrible. Yeah. I mean, I was a kid when all this was going on, and yeah, looking it up, I was like, oh my god, I'm glad that there was this much active. Like, the 80s were punctuated by these giant mega, like, live from London and New York City, and like, Phil Collins flew the Concord to perform in both places at live, or maybe it was Philadelphia, but- Did you watch it when it mm-hmm. was on? Yeah. Okay. Because I don't know, sometimes there's a four-year difference right. between us, and sometimes I'm in a wave of something- but this is one of the most vivid memories of that summer for me. I can tell you exactly what room of the house, where the television was, oh, how it all went down, what the sunshine looked like that day. Because I went out and played with my friends while I was waiting for Phil Collins to come in on the house. Like, it yeah. was an event that stopped the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, BBC cleared... I don't know, 16 hours of programming. It was, to it was air remarkable. It live. Yeah, yeah, it was simulcast live around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that would spawn Farm Aid and like a various... Absolutely. Yeah. All right. This work got him knighted by Elizabeth II in 1986, though as an Irishman, um, Sir Bob is just a nickname, not a formal styling. He's not a subject of the Queen. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yep. And there was another nickname. Oh, no. That he was also frequently known as uh, Saint Bob. I Yeah, he did a lot of good. He does a lot of he good. He does. Yeah. To, yeah, to the same. Ironically, the Boomtown Rats had pretty much wound down by the mid-80s. They've reformed in the last decade. But, but you know, yeah, like by 86 or so, they I think they were kind of wrapped. So while Bob was raising hundreds of millions of dollars for good causes... The success of Live Aid fully overshadowed his work as a musician. St. Bob wasn't just some foul-mouthed Irish singer with new wave roots. He was an important person who did important things, and one side effect of that was that he wasn't earning much money at this point in his career. Yeah. But what luck! He had a talented and beautiful partner who made a good living on television and had a funny, flirty, naughty, nice persona that was perfect for the work that she did. Great. In 1985, for her show The Tube, she interviewed a young Australian rock singer named Michael Hutchins. In bed? No, this was the... Okay. But they're standing at a bar and she keeps talking about his trousers and it's just very... No. Yeah, it's so awkward and, and I mean, it's delightful. 
delightfully she, awkward, awkwardly delightful. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. I mean, they're wow. they're vibing so hard. They're both like twenty three years old. They're both gorgeous. And uh, Michael Hutchins is gorgeous. I, I had forgotten. I he, like he, how pretty he was. He, he's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, my freshman heart will never forget. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ireland's Independent says this of that interview on the tube. Quote, to a friend, Paula confided that Hutchins made her feel quite feeble and footage of the interview sees her almost squirm on her stool while he smirked, almost in awareness and appreciation of his effect on her. Do you have his astrological sign? Michael Kelland John. Oh, John, look at me. I'm, I've, I've got, I've got your number. Uh, was born January 22nd, 1960. He's an Aquarius. So okay. he is less than a year. They're less than a year apart in age. Was dreamy Aquarii. Right. So she's yeah. married to a guy who is, or I guess the following year, she will become married to a guy. She's with a guy who is about a decade older, which is fine. But, sure. um, <laughs> you've seen Michael Hutchins. But then she, yeah, but then. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. All right. So my sophomore heart is beating a little differently than it was in my freshman year. <laughs> his family moved around a lot as a kid. His dad was a business guy. They lived in Hong Kong for a while, but they finally settled in Sydney when he was about 12. And it was here that he started playing music with friends. And despite a short stint in California, when his parents broke up in 1976, things were full steam ahead on the music circuit. In 1977, they started performing as the Ferris Brothers. Two of the guys were right. Ferris's with Michael on vocals, and they they briefly performed as the Vegetables, singing a song called "We Are the Vegetables." Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, in 1979, they finally settled on the name In Excess, just I N X S, and released their debut album in 1980. Yeah, they did. By the mid 80s, In Excess was on fire mm-hmm. in Australia and stretching into other markets. Their 1985 album, "Listen Like Thieves." had put the song What You Need onto the top five of the U.S. charts. They covered a song for the Lost Boys soundtrack in 1986. Speaking of pretty men. Oh, that is, yeah. And, oh, my high school years are, <laughs> it's all coming back to me now. And in 1987, they released the global chart-topping juggernaut of an album, Kick. Kick. Mm-hmm. This featured songs like Need You Tonight, Devil Inside, New Sensation, and Never Tear Us Apart. I know what I'm listening to tonight. Made in excess global superstars and one of the biggest rock bands around. Their progress was being followed closely by a certain English TV presenter. Who's who squirmy was, in her chair. Who was feeling increasingly controlled and smothered by her longtime boyfriend slash husband, Bob Geldof. Oh, no. Paula had reportedly remarked upon first seeing Michael Hutchins for the Tube interview, quote, I'm going to have that boy. Oh. And while it didn't happen right away, she spent the following nine years keeping <gasps> loosely in touch with him and going to NXS shows every time she could. Which is also how she met Bob, right? Just like she she was like a kind of groupie. There is one year in particular in this stretch that we should check in on. 1992 was really interesting for all three of all three of our Subjects, all three of our, whatever, all three of these people. Bob had branched out into the business side of media, trying to make some money happen. Um, So he had a TV production company called Planet 24. And so through Planet 24, he began producing the Big Breakfast Morning Show on UK screens all over. 
Paula, experienced TV person that she was, had an interview segment on this show <gasps> on the bed. No. Which happened, wait for it, on a bed. No. Okay. No, that's... So that's the two of them. Oh, God. Also in 1992, Michael Hutchins was in Copenhagen visiting his supermodel girlfriend, Helena Christensen, oh, that I summer. I forgot about that. Beautiful people. Uh, late one night, very drunk, he refused to move out of the way for a taxi. I assume words were exchanged. I assume they were not kind words. And the taxi driver hops out of the cab and decks him. And he falls hard. Oh, no. And fractures his skull on the pavement. Oh, shit. But, you know, being, I don't know, a 20-something-year-old rock star. Shake it off. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. go to a doctor for days. <gasps> no. So when he does, he gets checked into a hospital in Copenhagen for two weeks, but he permanently loses smell, most of his sense of taste. And his bandmates say that when he comes out of the hospital, he is significantly changed. His personality is like he experiences brain damage of some kind and it results in personality changes. What year was this? 92. Yeah. My car accident happened in 1994 and I couldn't smell or taste for about a decade. Wow. Mm -hmm. It takes a while, but I don't think he lives a decade. He does not. To be able to... Restore he, any brain function. He does wow. not. Well, okay. Also, he wasn't helping matters. He'd been, I mean, he, the band is called In Excess. He, <laughs> he was a wild man before this. Pun but intended. Yeah, his aggression went through the roof. He threatened, like he oh, pulled a knife no. on one of his bandmates like six weeks after this. Like he... It, it it was a significant... Definite shift in personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And so he was, you know, it, it also triggered a deep depression. He was being treated with a variety of prescription medications. He was also self-medicating with alcohol and whatever else he could find. Sometime in mid-1994, the newly improved, not really, Michael Hutchins and Paula embarked on an affair whose defining characteristic was full-throated, all-encompassing tragedy. Here's the independent again. Quote, the first time they spent the night together, Paula Yates said Michael Hutchins did six things I was firmly convinced were illegal. <gasps> it was a boast and according to one account involved oysters, among other things. I, this would spill I, onto the Big Bad interview oh um, where in October 1994, they reunited on camera and mostly showcased their intense chemistry and attraction. If tongues were not wagging after that appearance, they would be soon enough. Yikes on bikes. February 1995, after 19 years and three children together, Paula left Bob for Michael. Mm. Let's say that this was received poorly by the press in the UK and Ireland. Popular TV person Paula Yates had left St. Bob for another man. It was its own tabloid scandal and yeah. soap operatic melodrama. Yikes. Michael would assault a photographer at one point and pay a 400-pound fine for it. Paparazzi were constant. It was a thing. It was a whole thing. Over there. I don't think it was much of a thing over here. Headline news. Interestingly, Paula was not really a drinker or a user of drugs when she fell in love with Michael. Like, Bob, years and years and years later. Bob talks about, like, there was a time that he accidentally took heroin and like he has to go off record because he names another like another singer gave him some heroin. But the intent was so the other singer could get with Paula. <laughs> so 
like Bob Geldof, you know, gets high and then is sort of incapacitated by it. And the other singer is like trying to make a move. And, Great. I'll make a move on your wife. Right. And Paul is like, no, I like I'm imagining, you know, Mick Jagger, you know, Keith sure. Richards, like somebody, somebody. I'm just imagining her like, no, thank you. Just go on to bed now. <laughs> anyway. I probably just maligned Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. I'm just speculating. I'm not. (laughs) Insert famous rock star name there. Insert famous rock star name there. Okay. All right. So, yeah, Paula was not really a drinker or a user of drugs when she fell in love with Michael. And this later in life rebellion she was having against the life that 17-year-old Paula had set into motion had everyone around her and most especially her soon-to-be ex-husband very worried for her. Oh, I'd say. She got a boob job and friends watched in kind of horror as her behavior and personality changed. Her divorce from Bob concluded in May of 1996. In July, she gave birth to a daughter with Michael. Wow. Tiger Lily. That September, police were tipped off that there were drugs in the London house that she and Michael were staying in. Oh, God. And where all four of her children resided, <sighs> at least part-time. They were arrested on suspicion of drug possession, but the case was later dropped. However, when news broke about drugs at his daughter's other home, Bob moved swiftly to get the girls out of that situation. Oh, yeah. So he goes to court to get custody. This is September of 96. This will drag on for over a year. And it will ultimately prevent Paula from traveling to Sydney in November 1997 to be with Michael while the band did a 20th anniversary tour of Australia. There was a custody hearing scheduled for late November that got pushed to mid-December. So she was kind of just cooling her heels, waiting, because she wanted to take all four girls. Um, And why not? She's their mom. Like, Right. Okay. So Michael, meanwhile, is alone and increasingly depressed and on the other side of the world from, you know, his people. On November 22nd, 1997, his body was discovered in his hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton in Sydney. He had spoken to both Paula and Bob in the hours before his death. Another hotel guest overheard him apparently arguing with Bob in the wee hours, Sydney time. And in particular, the phrase, she's not your wife anymore, was overheard through the wall. Michael had fashioned his belt into a noose and tied it to the door closure arm at the top of the door. The coroner ruled it a suicide, citing Michael's depression and the presence of alcohol, cocaine, Prozac, and other prescription drugs in his blood at the time of his death. Wow. Yeah. When a friend broke the news of Michael's death to Paula in London, her immediate reaction was to punch the friend in the face. It was really bad. Paula would later adopt the view that Michael had died accidentally while engaging in autoerotic asphyxiation. Which, interestingly, is also the view that Bob Geldof has expressed in later years as well. Like, there's a, there are a couple of um, Australian 60 Minutes interviews with both of them that they'll be in, a, in our, at TrashyDivorces.com. Okay. Also, of course, though, Paula would blame Bob for Michael's death, basically arguing that all these legal fights he was throwing at them made things intolerable and drove Michael to suicide. So, complicated. She was, de- like... She was racked with grief, but clearly she had also gotten into a lot of things that she was maybe not prepared for. Emily Horican of The Independent, in another piece there, wrote this in 2017 on the 20th anniversary of Michael Hutchins' death. Brokenhearted, almost deranged, 
Paula survived only three more years, dying aged 41 of a heroin overdose in 2000. And then, 14 years after Paula, her daughter Peaches died, aged 25, also of a heroin overdose. Arguably, that too was part of the fallout of Hutchins' death. I may have mentioned this is this story's ta- it, super tragic. It's tragic. Like, it, there's, it's trashy, but it's really tragic, too. It's really, really sad. So, after Michael's death, Paula moved away from London. She got herself cleaned up, but she needed to work. She needed to earn a living, so she returned to London. Uh, friends say that she had not used drugs in two years before her death. And the coroner's report noted that the quantity of heroin in her system would not have killed a regular user of heroin, Mm. but it killed Paula Yates. Also, her body was discovered by a friend who called the house several times. The phone was answered by the four-year-old saying, Mommy's still asleep. And the friend came to check. terrible. It's really bad. Um, Amazingly... Bob's reaction to the death of his ex-wife, who had so publicly left him, was to take Tiger Lily in and raise her with her three half-sisters. Really? This was not without... Saint Bob! Right. This was not without controversy, but it is what happened. I think that the Hutchins family has not... Like, he didn't really facilitate much relationship there. As noted, in 2014, the Geldof family suffered another seismic loss with the death of the second daughter of Bob and Paula. She had transitioned to methadone treatment about two years earlier. So this whole story is just echoes of echoes of trauma. Like, um, he lost his... I think I hear you say imago of echoes. Kind of. Like, he, yeah, he lost his mom when he was little and she was 41. And his wife and his daughter. Well, and his, yeah, his daughters lost their mom. Yeah. I am not going to give this one trash cans because no. that does not feel right. Um, nope. It is so tragic. Like, listeners, I hope you're happy. I hope you're happy. No, I think she genuinely, I think like she and Michael Hutchins genuinely were just wild over each other. And problematically, uh, his lifestyle was such that, you know, partying too hard. And the things we do for love. The heart wants what the heart wants. So, yeah, I mean, in your story, like, he leaves to go off with the other woman but cleans himself up. Unfortunately, this is sort of the reverse is true. Like, Bob Geldof kept a fairly clean household. And then um, she, when she left, um, it all cratered. And there was wild substance misuse. And apparently there were... Polaroids around, like when the drug bust happened, there were Polaroids around the house where kids could find them of them um, in latex suits and sexy SM games and stuff. I mean, Mm. just, just, there was just a lot, just a lot. It was a very rock and roll lifestyle. Clearly, it went poorly. Ring of fire. It's rough. That one was rough. I think it's, I don't know, like there's just a lot in there that is just very human. I mean, both of these stories to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but certainly a lot of cautionary tale. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's funny. When she was a rebellious teenager, she went for the nice guy. And when she got older, she went for the bad boy. (laughs) It's just... Opposite. uh, Opposite, honey. Yeah. And in this case, I mean, it just went terribly wrong. So, 
That is uh, Paula Yates, Bob Geldof, and Michael Hutchins. Bob Geldof is still out there saving being lives. Being a saint, being yeah. awesome. Raising yeah. money, saving lives. Yeah, he's credited with like saving thousands and thousands of lives through his philanthropy. And he's amazing. Yeah, it's quite a legacy, but by golly, has his personal life been just deeply sad. Stacy, well done. Thanks. Trash Pandas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening. Now that we've uplifted you. And spending your time with us for with, these uplifting with stories. Our happy tales. Of trashy divorces. <laughs> Don't forget to email uh, us your listener stories about your trashy divorces, trashy weddings, trashy mother-in-laws, trashy bridesmaids, dresses, whatever. We want to hear them. Send them to you, trashydivorces at gmail.com. Don't forget we have our new American Girl episode coming Tuesday, along with tidbits, Monday, some other fun surprises on Patreon. And next week, I hope you're gearing up for the host choice season eight finale. Two years of trashy divorces, Stacey. Oh my God. I know. We're at eight seasons. We got a whole new 2021 coming for you. Wow. We embrace pajama culture. 2021. <laughs> coming at you <laughs> thank you everybody for tuning in we appreciate you we spending appreciate your time you. with us we appreciate you a lot yeah i mean hey goals for this week wash your hands oh so much hand washing wear your mask wear your mask yeah and keep those hearts real trashy keep your hearts trashy we'll see you on patreon this week if not we'll see you back for the season eight finale next sunday with your trashy trashy hearts. Bye, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all. <laughs>